Let's pray. Father, it is good, Lord, good for my heart, just together with other voices, other hearts, and praise you for who you are and for what you've done. You deserve that. You're worthy of that. In fact, you're worthy of all praise. To you belongs all power, all dominion, all glory. We are wanting, longing to express the worship and praise that you deserve and the vehicle of words seems very inadequate. We know that your spirit helps us to pray, even interprets the very groanings of our heart. God, accept our worship, our heartfelt worship this morning. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done, who you are. We're going to be talking about what you've done and what you do in the lives of people today through your grace. What I'm asking you, Lord, right now related to that is I am asking you to just send your power from above. Send your Holy Spirit in power in this place, manifest presence to be here, Lord, to overwhelm me, to fill me, to keep me out of sight, to point to Jesus and give him glory and proclaim the truth about him to the glory of the Father. And be here in power to open ears and eyes and minds to see and understand and embrace that truth. Pray that you do that all across this city. Thank you for the brothers and sisters that we have in Christ that are not here this morning. Our meeting in some 250 to 300 churches all across this city. Bless them with your presence, your power. Father, thank you for the ministry of Crisis Pregnancy Center that you have risen up and that you put your hand upon. I believe you do that and have, have done and will continue to do that because they are defending the defenseless. That's, a, that's your heart. 
they are speaking out for those who cannot speak. They are striving to protect and guard the sanctity of life. And I know that you as the author of life have that as a key heartbeat. Bless them, God. Bless Bill Donovan as he leads that ministry. Fill him with your spirit and those that serve there. Let the couples, the young ladies, any lady that comes into that ministry to see the reality, to see the truth of what is inside of her womb and to guard it, make the decision to guard it. Thank you, Lord. Give you the rest of this morning. Have your way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As a matter of fact, we we had a loss, a great loss in our church this week and one of member that's been here, I've been here 22 years and he was here long before I got here, Jack Parrott went to be with the Lord and family needs our prayers and the Spirit of God would just comfort them. I just want to pray for that situation. Would you join me there again? Father, I, I pray for Gloria and the Parrott family. I ask God that you, in your grace, your Holy Spirit, who the Word says is the comforter, that you would comfort, guard, that you would support them and lift them up and carry them through the valley of the shadow of death here as only you can. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to do so again today, and we begin a topic last week from that verse, and the topic is this. It's seen right in the verse. The topic is the reign of grace. The reign of grace. We talked about two aspects of that reign of grace, that the reign of grace consists of covenant grace and righteous grace. Covenant grace is when the reign of grace began. It goes back before time, before the creation of the world, when God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that triune Godhead made a decision that when 
their creation, the human race, created in the very image of God, would sin, that that sin would not go uncontested, would not eternally wipe out and destroy the human race, but they made a decision that they were going to do something about it. And they established a covenant, a covenant of grace, and grace took the throne before time began. And then grace is a righteous grace. We talked about that last week right there in chapter 5, verse 21, that grace reigns through righteousness. That simply means that Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death made it possible for God to extend His grace to us without turning His back on sin and setting it aside, but punishing it to the full extent in the person of His Son so that when He comes to you and I, when we put our faith in Christ, He can extend grace to us without doing violence to His righteousness. So grace reigns through righteousness. I want to talk to you today about two more aspects of the reign of grace. And the first one is this, that grace that reigns is a conquering grace. It is a conquering grace. You see, Paul said here in Romans 5.21 that as sin reigned, grace also must reign. That as sin reigned, Paul, from verse 11 down to verse 21, he's been showing us, teaching us about the fact that in Adam, in Adam's sin, we are condemned. That Adam, as our federal head, when he sinned in the garden, he brought in ushered in sin into the human condition and the scripture clearly says you can read those verses says several times right in verse 5 verses 11 to 21 that because of Adam's one sin we are condemned so what happens is then we are born into a state of condemnation we are born soiled at the core with a sinful nature but the point Paul is making here is good news, not bad news. The point he is making here is that as sin reigned, grace might also reign. That just as we entered into this situation, having done nothing to cause it, but born into condemnation, that so also grace comes to reign in a life, not because of something that you do, but because of something that someone else has done, and that someone else is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the second Adam. He's the one that came to take care of what the first Adam did. And so, as sin reigned, grace also comes to reign So the point here 
just as we begin, I want you to understand this about conquering grace. Grace is not simply something that comes and brings to us a choice. Grace comes to act. Grace comes in power. Grace comes to bring its curse-canceling, sin-defeating power into a life. So we're going to talk about how grace does that. How grace comes in to a situation in which sin conquers and begins to reign. And where we're going to look at that is all the way down at ground level, all the way down into an individual life. Because folks, the greatest display, the greatest act of power that grace performs is when grace comes to a life and changes that life from being under the curse, condemned under the dominion and power of sin and takes that life and brings new life to it and brings it into a new kingdom, gives it a new reality and a new eternity. There is no greater power that grace accomplishes than that. So what we're going to do as we look at conquering grace, we're just going to see how grace does that in one life. But before we start that, what is grace up against in a life? I'm going to give you three things. Number one, grace is up against spiritual death. The first monumental hurdle that grace must conquer is spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What is it like to be spiritually dead? Well, what is it like to be physically dead? The dead are not concerned with their condition, are they? Are the dead concerned with their condition, physical death? Are the dead even aware of their condition? Same thing is true in spiritual death. Spiritual death is not non-existence. Spiritual death is a situation in which the individual is not aware of its condition, not concerned about its condition. Those that are spiritually dead Let's put it in the realm of the senses. Those that are spiritually dead, they cannot hear the truth. They cannot see the truth. They cannot understand the truth. They cannot feel the truth because they're dead. They are dead to the things of the Spirit. They are spiritually dead. That is... The first condition that grace that comes in to conquer must face in a life. Secondly, not only are they 
spiritually dead. They are in rebellion. You see, again, spiritual death is not non-existence. In fact, Paul says this, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Paul says here that an individual who is not saved is one that is in open hostility to God. Not only can they not hear, see, understand the truth, but they also reject it, oppose it, resist it. That is the first two monumental roadblocks to conquering grace. And then thirdly, Satan. Satan and his forces. Satan is the king of a dark kingdom. And in his dark kingdom, there is an ancient fortress that was erected. That fortress was erected when Adam rebelled in the garden and it has stood ever since in reigning power and everyone born as a son or a daughter of Adam is born into that captivity, in that castle. And because of where they were born in the kingdom of darkness, where we were born in the kingdom of darkness with a sinful nature, what we do is we act out upon that nature. And so not only are we locked up within the fortress of sin, but also we act out in sin and act by act, sin by sin, what we are doing in that fortress is we are building the walls of our own cell setting the bars down deep, putting up the secure door, forging the chain of bondage link by link, sin by sin, that binds us to the wall. That's what grace is up against when it comes to conquer. So how does grace then win the day? What I want to do is I want to give you under this umbrella of conquering grace. This is number three, continuation from last week. Covenant grace, righteous grace, and now conquering grace. All of them a part of the reign of grace. And what conquering grace does, I want to give you seven acts of power or love that it performs. Here's number one. Grace comes in electing power. Now, I'm aware, I just want to say this, I'm going to be fair to those that have a different opinion here. There are those that do not subscribe, I'm sure, exactly to where I'm lining up in this. I'm going to share my opinion with you. I don't have any pain in my heart. If you do not uh, agree with where I stand, I hope that you do not have any pain in your heart, but I'm just going to share my opinion with you here. It's my strong conviction that God in grace chooses us. 
that God in his grace sets his sights on a soul. A soul that is in that fortress, in that castle of sin, locked up in its own cell, in bondage, under the dominion, shackled by chains. And that God and His grace and its electing power sets His sight on that individual. You see, grace must choose to come in its conquering power because of what we were just talking about a moment ago, because we are dead and in rebellion within a dark kingdom with a strong king. And if grace does not determine to come to us, we would never, ever make one movement out of that prison. Here's the second thing that conquering grace does. And these next two, there is really, I'm not even sure what the order is. There, there is an order of salvation in Scripture, acts that are a part of salvation in Scripture. These next two almost could be taking place at the very same moment. I think maybe they actually do that, but I'm going to keep them distinct to try to explain the truths of each. This second act of grace is that it comes in regenerating power. Regenerating power. You see, what grace has to do to the one that's dead and a rebel, grace has to come in and wake that person out of the sleep of death. Grace has to come and give sight to blind eyes so they can see the beauty of Christ. Give hearing to deaf ears so they can hear the truth of Christ. Give understanding to a dead mind so it can comprehend the truth of the gospel. Give feeling, spiritual feeling of conviction to a stony heart so that it can sense the love of God. Grace has to come in regenerating power to infuse the principle of life so that we can see, hear, know, understand, feel, and respond. And if it does not do that, we're just dead, unaware, oblivious. So regenerating grace comes and it convicts us of our sin, and it convinces us of God's truth. Number three, conquering grace comes in, could use different terms here, it comes and it gives a call. It extends a call, a compelling call. Now again, here, in fairness here, I, I want to let you know that I'm aware that not everybody lines up here related to the call. And 
the compelling nature of the call or to what extent that call is compelling. So I'll share, you, share with you what it was for me. For me, it was irresistible. For me, when God woke me up and showed me with my eyes His love in Christ and let my ears hear and my mind understand the truth of what He was offering and my heart feel the depths at least to its ability at that point of His love. I can tell you for me, there was no other decision. Nothing else made sense at that moment. And for me, that call compelled me. Did I have to make a choice? Yes, I had to make a choice. But that call came to me in such a compelling way that there was really no other choice. Not Remaining in my right mind, in my regenerated understanding, there was no other viable choice. And I wonder, certainly, really God ultimately knows the answer to that question, but anyone that has received Christ, it must have been compelling enough that the alternative was not an option. And the only way we would have come to that was if conquering grace was for conquering grace to ride in and rescue. And then the fourth aspect of conquering grace is its justifying power. We'll talk a long time about this because I've been talking for a year about this. The justifying power of God's grace is this, that God, when the one that grace has set its sights on and the one that grace has regenerated and extended a compelling call to that when that individual responds to that call and chooses grace, that God in heaven, the judge of all the universe, he makes a declaration and he says, I declare that person to be right in my sight. It is understood in the terms of a legal discussion. It is the judge of all making a legal declaration that that person is now no longer in a wrong standing with his law as a lawbreaker, but is now in a right standing. Not because of their own effort to be there, but because Jesus Christ is the perfectly righteous one and through his death, taking our sin is extending to us his righteousness. And so when we 
Choose the grace that compels us that God justifies us. He declares us to have the very righteousness of His Son. He sees us as He sees His perfect Son. And we are saved. You see, just as I was condemned in Adam's sin, now God declares me righteous in Christ's righteousness. But folks... That's not the end of conquering grace. Grace does not just ride in. I missed this verse earlier, but grace does not just ride in to the kingdom of darkness and storm the citadel of sin and bust through the gates and climb the stairs and kick in the cell and rip clean the shackles and throw you over its shoulder and ride out of the castle and across the land of darkness and brings you into a kingdom of new light and life. Grace not only does that, that's justifying grace, but grace stays with the one that it came to rescue. And it does at least three more things. Conquering grace comes in sanctifying power, sustaining power, and glorifying power. Let me show you those quickly. Sanctifying power. Sanctification is a big term. And it's a term that is that pictures the process of what happens once new life has been given. Once that new creation in Christ, in justification, is created, sanctification is the process in which that new life moves forward and grows into maturity and becomes all that God created it to be. That process through which that happens is the process of sanctification. Now, I want to give you one awe-inspiring illustration from the life of Christ that really has helped me when God showed this to me years ago. Illustration related to Salvation and sanctification, new life and then growth in that life. Jesus stood outside a sealed tomb, tomb sealed for four days. And there was the family and the mourners and the weeping. And Jesus said, Roll the stone away. And those standing there resisted, and Jesus insisted, and they rolled the stone away. 
And then Jesus called out across that threshold of death, and he said, Lazarus, come out. And there was hushed silence. And then out of the darkness of the cavern of the tomb, the sound of the shuffling. And a moment later, there standing in the doorway of death, mummified, stood Lazarus. Folks, was Lazarus alive at that point? Was Lazarus alive? Yes, he was alive. But what did he look like? He looked like death. He was wrapped in the shroud of death from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Probably would have died again quickly if they would have left it on. And Jesus says something profound, not just practical, but profound. He said, unwrap him and let him go. You see, you and I, new believers, can be just like Lazarus standing in that doorway of death. We can have brand new life pulsating life on the inside and on the outside be shrouded in the trappings of death, be carrying around the grave clothes of sin, habits and activities. And what the king of grace rides in in conquering power and stays in conquering power to do is that he wants to take that new principle of life on the inside and he wants to bring it all the way out onto the outside. He wants to have you unwrapped and let go. You see, when God looks at you in salvation, he sees new life. When the world looks at you in sanctification, it sees new life. And so the grave clothes have to be unwrapped. The truth of the pulsating life internally needs to become the external expression of the words and the thoughts and the deeds and the actions of that new life. That's the process of sanctification. It is the putting off of the old and the putting on of the new, Paul said. And what part does the king of grace, what part Does he play in that process? Philippians 2, 12 and 13. 
Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Certain aspects of Christianity want to highlight and focus on and emphasize the man work in the process. Work out your own salvation. Other aspects of segments of Christianity want to focus in on and highlight God's work in the process. I feel much more comfortable in a balanced position between those two, focusing in on the word for with this meaning. It means that we have the possibility and the responsibility of working out what God has worked in us. That we need to apply the commitment to the new life, but notice that that commitment, that that determination and the follow-through on it Who is the one that enables that to happen? It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And so in all of the process, God is at the center working. He began it, he worked it in, and then you respond to him and he gives you the will and the power ability to determine to do what God wants, and then the power to carry it to completion, to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So the king of grace, oh, the king of grace is intimately, directly, day by day, moment by moment, involved in the ongoing sanctification of the believer then what about the sustaining power of conquering grace? Let me have some fun with this one. Sustaining power of conquering grace simply means this, that that work of sanctification is going to keep on happening until it's completed. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm sure about something. And what I'm sure about is that God finishes what he starts. But he says it even more than that. He says, I'm sure about this, that when God starts the work of salvation in a person's life, he's going to finish it. Paul says, I'm sure of that. I'm sure of that. Question for you. I'm going to be transparent. I'm asking you to be truthful. How many of you, like me, have ever started a project that you haven't finished? (laughs) With every, I just had a birthday. With every year I add, my list just grows longer and longer of unfinished tasks. Why is that? This is not a statement about morality. It's just a statement about reality. What are the things that cause us to start things we don't finish? Let me just give you several. Have have fun with a couple of them. Number one, my desire may change. 
Number two, my mind may change. What seemed like a good idea at the time of seeing that thing from a different angle and no longer does it seem like a good idea and so the project is set aside. My circumstances may change. Here's one for you guys. You discover that that tricked out, exhilarating, rumbling muscle car that you've been working at restoring for five years, you all of a sudden discover that your wife and you and your two kids and their car seats don't fit in that muscle car. You know because you tried it and after 30 exasperating minutes, and some modifications, not on the children, but on the car seat. You finally got the little tykes strapped in. But what you discovered is that exhilarating rumble that gave you great joy did something very different to them. And that cool little sportster back seat to them was like a dark, scary cavern. And where were the monitors on the back of the front seats for entertainment? And then you make a discovery. Like for the first time in your life, you discover the minivan. The minivan. And you stand there on the showroom floor and you see it in all of its glory. Four full-size doors, two of them slide back, open access into the car seat. And oh, the cargo space, oh, the cargo space. So that you have room for, here's just a short list, diaper bags, gym bags, school backpacks, science project foldouts, roller blades, gerbil cages, basketballs, snowboards, a dog kennel, and the list goes on. And also extra room for Katie, Kylie, and Haley, your daughter's three friends. And if you were in your muscle car, it would have taken you 11 trips and two tanks of gas. And so what happens is that your circumstances change. And two weeks later, a young man looking for an exhilarating rumble sees an ad on Craigslist and he rumbles the car out of your driveway to pursue his dream. Unfinished project because of changed circumstances. Your understanding may change. Your energy may change. Has anyone's energy changed? <laughs> Your abilities may change. Your resources may change. Folks, what is the common denominator in every one of those? What's the word? Oh, come on. You, you can get it. Ready? Change. Change. But the consistent, listen, the consistent declaration of Scripture is this. Your God never 
changes. Your God is immutable. That means he changes not. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. What that means is there will never be any new information that comes into his existence that causes him to think differently than he thought when he chose you. Never Will there be any new information? He has known it all from before time began. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? He who possesses eternal power, unlimited Eternal power will never have it wane in one degree regardless of what he does. For to him nothing is impossible. He who possesses inexhaustible, undiminishable resources will never come up short so that he has to set a project aside. Folks, the Bible says not one word of God will ever fall to the ground. Not one verdict of God will ever be appealed. Not one judgment of God will ever be overturned. Not one plan of God's will ever be thwarted. Not one war in which he's involved will ever be lost. Not one promise he made will ever fail. And I believe that the Word of God says that not one child of his will ever be taken, not one son or daughter will ever be forsaken. That is sustaining Power. Listen to this little poem. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will not, he cannot desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, he'll never. No, never, no, never forsake. Folks, but it doesn't even end there. Because in addition to those six acts of power, in the conquering work of grace, in the life of an individual, comes the seventh act, and that is the glorifying power of grace. what the glorifying power of grace does is at the culmination of that process of sanctification on the day when the Lord Jesus returns, all of the projects that God has been working on, all of those projects of sanctification in individual lives, they will all be completed 
in a blazing flash of glory. When we see Jesus as he is, we will be made like him. These earthly, decaying, frail bodies will be discarded and we will put on immortality and we will step into a reigning position for all of eternity as heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Conquering grace that began the process will take us all the way from the pit of sin to the throne of heaven. But one more, just one more aspect of the reign of grace, a fourth main point. We have the reign of grace is covenant grace The reign of grace is righteous grace last week and then today the reign of grace is conquering grace and finally the reign of grace is amazing grace. Let me explain that to you as we close. What that means is that grace is is going to eternally amaze. Grace is going to eternally amaze. A couple of verses. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 That God comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. See, Christ is going to come, and when he returns, he is going to be marveled at, glorified in his saints. If you're a follower of Christ, that means you. He's going to be glorified in you. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 Paul wrote that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I believe that's happening right now. I believe that's going to happen throughout all of eternity that the spiritual beings, the intelligent spiritual beings, angels, principalities, powers, reigning in the heavenlies, they look at the church They are now, they will forever look at this body of Christ that Christ has redeemed and they look and there's a revelation that comes to them. Give me liberty to just try to verbally paint the picture of what that might look like. In a trillion years from now, with you in heaven. And two of those beings, those intelligent, spiritual, exalted beings, they look at you and they say, look, look over there. There's one of them right over there. There's one of those that were in open rebellion
obedient to our Creator. And now look at them. Look what God in His grace has done for them. That's one of those right over there that the Lord of all eternity, the Lord of glory and all majesty, He left His throne of majesty to go down to that second-rate planet and rescue them. Wow! And look what He has done for them. He actually was nailed to the tree. Do you remember that scene? Do you remember watching that from heaven? How we were overcome. How could this be happening? It was for him that he did that. And not only that, look at where he has lifted them to. He's exalted them beyond us. He has made them, can you grasp it? He has made them children of his, actual brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the grace of God, it defies my understanding. And the other says, yes, I know. Whenever I see them, I can't help it. This spontaneous worship wells up in my heart. And I can't help but begin to praise and extol God for the wonder of his grace and what he has done for them. And they break out in worship saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might and power forever and ever. And you hear their conversation. And you say, yes, that's right. Give him worship. He deserves all of it. And with them, you're caught up in that spontaneous worship of the Lamb on the throne. And folks, that little picture, I don't believe even does justice to the reality of what's going to take place, that there is going to be an ongoing, eternal revelation to the intelligent beings of heaven when they look at us there will be an increasing majesty and glory and understanding of God and his grace that perpetuates an increasing measure forever and ever and ever and ever. Oh, grace is so amazing.
message like this is really just striving to do one thing. It's not heavy on application in spoken word, but it should be heavy on application in response. Because my only goal this morning was just to set before you the beauty and the glory of God and His grace and try with my frail language to paint a picture of God's grace that would be overwhelming and compelling to you, that would cause your hearts to rise up in spontaneous worship, not just the praise of your lips, but the day-to-day lifestyle of your actions and your thoughts and your motives, that you would be so compelled by that picture as you meditate upon the amazing grace of God that it would call you up, that it would cause you to be radically committed day by day to unwrapping the trappings of death that may still be lingering on your life so that the Holiness of God can be seen through you and God be glorified. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Father, oh, Father. Move in power, Lord, in my heart, in our hearts. Let the radical picture of the grace of God produce a radical response in our lives in my life. A radical response that does its best to give you its due. Help us to see in that picture the power of grace so that we would be confident that the same God who set his sights on us and the same God that put that regenerating principle of life in us and the same God that extended that compelling call and the same God that made the declaration that we were righteous and the same God that has been committed to our growth 
and the same God that one day is going to glorify us, that that God can and will right here today and in the days to come work in conquering power in and through us to do what we cannot do. Ladies and gentlemen, just just in a heart of prayer here, I know that some of you are here this morning and you are in what looks like an impossible situation. But the word of God today is that grace conquers. It super abundantly abounds over sin and it conquers. Father, where there are lives that need, lives that are just absolutely in their mind's eye, 